Part Three, Section Two, of the Sinking of the Merrimac by Richmond Pearson Hobson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three: Imprisonment in Morro Castle, Section Two, containing Every Man Would Do It Again Tonight, Sir, Comforts from the British Consul, Astonishing Report of Casualties in the Merrimac Affair, Why the Maneuver Failed, A Fancy of What Might Have Happened our rations, Spanish and American soldiers compared, more courtesies, a reconnaissance from the cell window, a midnight intruder, a question of humanity. Soon after the captain left, directions for the door to be left open during the daytime were issued by the authorities, and in a few minutes Charette was sent in. He had his usual cheerful look, unperturbed by the sight of the men's wretched cell and by the uncertainties of our confinement. He referred to the heavy situation we had just passed through and said, Every man would do it again tonight, sir. Indeed, throughout the whole term of imprisonment, the men showed the most remarkable spirit of cheerfulness. They never had the support of kind words and courteous visits as I did. Yet never once did they exhibit signs of anxiety or fear. The Spanish soldiers at first taunted them as they would Cuban prisoners, called them desperados, accused them of fighting for money, and made signs of dealing out coin, and passed their fingers across their throats and shook their heads to indicate the fate that awaited the crew. My men only smiled at such taunts, and they actually laughed at the gruesome mockings. It seems that the impression was more or less general at first, that the men were not Americans, but a hired gang of desperadoes. Several days later one of the officers spoke in a similar strain, whereupon I asked him what he meant. He replied, For instance, two of your men are deserters from the Spanish army, and that man Charette is a Catalonian from the northeastern part of Spain. One of your men is a Swede, another is a German. I told him he was never more mistaken in his life, that the men were all American citizens, regularly enlisted and serving in the American Navy, and that so far from its being necessary to get desperate men for the work, virtually the whole fleet had volunteered for it, and had pleaded to be allowed to go. This it seemed impossible for him to understand. Charette had not been gone long when, to my surprise, Men began bringing in furniture, a table, a washstand, a pitcher, a basin, a cot with a good double blanket, and several chairs, one of them a rocker, while at the same time a hammock and a blanket were taken to each man. This proved to be the first of a long series of thoughtful kindnesses from Frederick W. Ramsden, Esquire, British Consul at Santiago. Kindnesses that contributed in the most essential manner to the health and comfort of the American prisoners. His thoughtfulness had been so prompt that these articles had come down all the way from Santiago City before we had been an hour in the Morro. After the arrival of the furniture, the situation, with my door open, looking out over the sea, was actually cheerful. It was not long before the governor of the Morro came making me a most cordial visit. He was followed by the colonel commanding the artillery. This officer, after kind salutations, referred to the heavy fire he had withstood so long and to the gallantry of our fire in return. 
When I informed him that we had no guns on board, he was utterly incredulous, and seemed to conclude that I was deceiving him, for he replied, But I know you must have fired, for I myself was struck on the foot, though I was standing away up above. I replied that it must have been a fragment resulting from their own fire, at which the colonel became serious, as though a new and unwelcome thought was passing through his mind. He, too, had taken us for an armored vessel forcing our way through, and what he said about our fire puzzled me. The next time Charette came in, he told me that wounded men were being operated on in the room just above the men's cell, and that the blood was running down the wall and had run down the clues of his hammock, so that he had had to change his position. When I had a chance to speak to him and to the others afterward, they said that both a Spanish sergeant and a Spanish private had told them that the blood came from the men we had wounded, that we had killed fourteen and wounded thirty-seven. In a visit to the Morro after the surrender, I was very much puzzled to find fresh gashes and imprints of various sizes in the rear walls, as though it had been attacked from the inshore side, while we had attacked only from the sea. Every indication seems to point to the conclusion that the Spaniards firing at the Merrimack had struck their own men across the channel. This was the more to be expected from the horizontal fire. Moro, though elevated, was in the line of fire from the Reina Mercedes, whose projectiles exploding on the Merrimack doubtless showered the banks in the rear of Moro beyond. No wonder, then, that they took us for an armored man-of-war. My mind turned again to the Merrimack, and I realized with repeated pangs that she did not completely block the channel. The ground tackle had exhibited extraordinary qualities of resistance, and with the slightest help of the helm to start the turning it was evident that the vessel would have swung to her position athwart with mathematical precision. But at the last moment the steering gear was destined to be shot away. The entire speed of the vessel had been absorbed by the elastic qualities of the anchor gear. Even then, if the stern anchor had been retarded only a few seconds longer, its chain would have held the vessel secure. Alas, it had been dropped a moment too soon, and, as was learned later, not by the man stationed there, but by the explosion of one of the enemy's projectiles. Again, only two torpedoes out of the whole number had gone off, and these were the least effective of all. In fact, that part of the ship affected by torpedo number five had already been flooded by the sea connections. This disabling of torpedoes had been due to the necessity of using batteries for their discharge instead of an electric machine. It was extraordinary that the mine had helped us, but little, if at all. It seemed by a hard fate to have flooded the region that had already been twice flooded by sea connections and by torpedo number five. Again, how extraordinary, after resting eight or ten minutes grounded on Estrella, to be wrenched off by the tide. One would indeed expect a vessel so grounded to resist strongly the efforts of her own engines and of tugs. And then, when I saw her begin to straighten out in the channel, if we had only had the warheads, we should have gone down like a shot. It seems strange that the admiral had twice refused to let me take them, though he had allowed everything else I had asked for. Then again, if the vessel had hung on only a few minutes longer, 
till the accelerated sinking due to the submergence of the cargo ports had set in, we scarcely should have been wrenched off before going down. But no, it seemed that we had to be wrenched off just soon enough to allow the vessel to drift down and straighten completely out. As I reviewed the experience, a flood of bitterness swept over me. These remarkable adverse coincidences could never happen again. As I saw the tug with a flag of truce going out to the fleet, I thought if I could only be exchanged quickly, or escape, the Admiral would let me take in the other collier with the same plans and arrangements and the same crew. Another time I would guarantee complete blocking. While I was thinking over the circumstances of our capture, it struck me as singular that Admiral Cervera should have had a squad of riflemen in the steam launch since his reconnaissance involved only a poor old catamaran and the top of the funnel and masts of a sunken vessel. Then it occurred to me that his precaution was a wise one, for otherwise we might have done a neat stroke of work. My men included a machinist, a fireman, and two coxswains, and the others were all determined fellows. Our loaded revolvers with waterproof cartridges were hidden under our life preservers, how easy it would have been under ordinary conditions, after getting on board the launch and untying the strings of our life preservers, on a signal from me to throw them off, draw revolvers, and cover all the men on board, and quietly take possession. I could have covered the three officers sitting together aft. My men could have taken stations, and we should have had force enough to continue to cover the crew of the launch, or they could easily have been shoved over. We could then have proceeded out of the harbor to the New York in the Spanish Admiral's launch with himself and his staff as trophies of the adventure. The Admiral's launch would not have been fired on by the guns at the entrance, and even if the destroyer close by had taken alarm, she could not have hoisted anchor until we should have been well away, and she could not have chased us outside without having been met by the fire of our fleet. This maneuver would doubtless have suggested itself at the time, if it had not been for the formidable squad of riflemen. A soldier coming in at this time with a pan of frijoles or beans, my thoughts came back to my surroundings. The frijoles were followed by a pan of rice and bread. I had the table placed in front of the door so that I might watch the ships while I was eating. Appetite was keen, and my first meal in prison was very much relished. The regular ration consisted of frijoles, rice, and bread, and, except the bread, continued to be served in full quantity till the end of our captivity. As a rule, a piece of sausage came with the frijoles. The cooking did not vary, both staples being invariably boiled without seasoning, and exactly the same food was served at every meal, until the system somewhat rebelled, and after a while called strongly for variety. Yet, on the whole, the food was nourishing. After the transfer to Santiago, a ration of beef was added, and it was clear that the authorities were giving me the same food that they issued to the Spanish officers. My men received the same ration of frijoles, rice, and bread, with a reduced ration of beef, while no beef at all was included in the ration of the Spanish soldier. Flour soon became scarce, and corn and a mixture of corn and rice were substituted. It was evident, however, that the Spaniards depended on bread more than we did, and felt more keenly its scarcity. So it can be said broadly that during the imprisonment the prisoners fared as well as their captors, if not better. While I ate, 
the soldiers of the garrison lined up on the opposite side of the small court to receive their food, each one carrying his pan. One can imagine the interest with which I examined the Spanish soldiers making mental comparisons with our own, and endeavoring to foresee the probable action and results when the two should be found facing each other, as I knew they would before many weeks. It was clear at a glance that they were from the peasant classes. Many of them were very young, and the average perhaps four or five inches less in height, and at least twenty-five pounds less in weight than our men. They did not look to be in good health, having bad complexions, and many of them were coughing. It was clear that we heavily outclassed them physically. The most striking feature, however, was the completely passive expression of the face. They made little effort at conversation and seldom smiled. For some time they had probably been working very hard on the emplacements for batteries, and there seemed no surplus energy for any other activity. The eye was usually dull, having a steady, stoical look, in some cases pathetic. In temperament they were clearly just the opposite of our own troops, who, recruited from a higher class, had the alert, animated look of aggressive men. As luncheon was completed, an orderly appeared with a tray bearing cigars, cigarettes, and a bottle of cognac, which he presented with the compliments of the governor of the Moro, delivering at the same time a note in French, with cautiously couched words of kindness, to this effect. Sir, the commandant of the fortress and the officers of the engineers and of the artillery have the honor to salute you, and to offer to do anything in their power to ameliorate your situation. We therefore beg you to make known to us your wishes. Accept, sir, the compliments of our highest esteem. Antonio Ros, the governor. There could not have been a more thoughtful token of kindness, hospitality, and good wishes, though, as it happened, I was not accustomed to using any of the articles offered. Having nothing to write with, I had to send my compliments and thanks by a verbal message. When the orderly was gone, I sent the soldiers who were waiting on me to the crew with the cigars and cigarettes, keeping a few, however, together with the cognac. And these, singular as it appears, were used to offer the hospitality of the cell to the officers that called later. I was deeply touched by the calls which I continued to receive from officers during the afternoon and the following days. My visitors were of all grades, and many came from a distance. Officers, nearly all my seniors in age and rank, would beg, as they put it in warm and dignified words, to be allowed to shake my hand. There can be no question that the Spanish character is deeply sensible to a genuine sentiment. The history of warfare probably contains no instance of chivalry on the part of captors greater than that of those who fired on the Merrimack, and I know that harshness of treatment could have had its origin only in official considerations. The afternoon passed quickly. In the intervals between visits I would walk up and down or sit in the doorway and look out over the sea at our fleet, which with its stately movements presented constantly changing positions in constantly changing effects of light. I also noticed the vultures that sailed about close at hand, turning their uncanny heads as if investigating, and the graceful bosun birds with a long marlin-spike body and keenly tapered bow wings. 
At five, dinner or supper was served with the same food, the soldiers lining up as for luncheon. The sun sank. The vessels stood to their night positions. The sentry closed the door, shoved the bolt, and turned the key. A shaft of light still came in through the small barred window high up in the wall on the west side, the only opening beside the door. I walked up and down in the darkness till the lampman came in with a lamp. I turned it low, screening it, and continued walking till about nine, when I moved the cot beneath the window as if preparing to sleep and lay down. When I was sure the sentry would believe me asleep, I stepped on the cot and drew myself up to investigate the window. What a sight greeted me! The view was down a sheer height of perhaps two hundred and fifty feet upon the entrance, and stretching out to the westward and northwestward under the full moon lay a tragic panorama, weird in its stillness, with the mountains in the distance, and Socapa just across, showing the glint of guns in its batteries on top and on the slopes. There lay the picket boat again, just outside the entrance. Farther in, the bow of the Reina Mercedes stood out clear behind Socapa, and beyond her, in the bight to the left near Smith Key, lay a destroyer, seemingly looking at the sunken Merrimack just ahead. So then they had a destroyer on each side of the channel, up the bight to the left as well as to the right. Beyond Smith Key lay the black and sullen hull of the Vizcaya, with her broadside to the opening channel. The masts of her two sister ships, the Maria Teresa and the Almirante Oquedo, and those of the Colon beyond Punta Gorda showed that they too would bear upon a vessel passing into the inner harbor. Except in the battery to the eastward of Moro, the panorama included all the defenses of the channel. How remarkable this entrance lends itself to defense, and how cleverly the Spaniards had availed themselves of its natural advantages. Since lunch and I had been thinking about the defenses and their bearing upon the prosecution of the war, I had heard Admiral Sampson and Captain Chadwick refer to the selection of a point for landing troops, and wondered if it were intended to try to take the city and attack the enemy's ships from the land. And the more I thought on the subject, the more futile such an attempt seemed. How could the city be occupied under the guns of the enemy's ships? How could land artillery of sufficient caliber to outclass the armor of the Spanish vessels ever be placed in position under the fire of their guns? How could such artillery even be landed and transported under existing conditions? The conclusion grew stronger that land operations against the ships and the army of occupation would probably cost thousands of lives, that the ships should be captured or destroyed and the city taken by our vessels, the army's best function being simply to cut off escape inland and to occupy the place after surrender. Steadily this conclusion engendered a profound conviction that if the enemy should not come out, we should go in. I determined to make every possible endeavor to get back to the fleet with my knowledge of the defenses. Escape from the cell was impossible. I should have to await further developments. My mind turned again upon the Merrimack. How fortunate it seemed to me now that she did not go down athwart the channel. Our entrance for the rest of the war would have been impossible. She could not be better situated. The enemy would hesitate a long time before trying to pass, thus allowing time for our whole fleet to arrive. 
Their ships could not form in the enlargement of the channel, or even across it, but would have to pass single file, and would be at great risk if they tried to pass at night. Heaven had not frowned upon our efforts after all. The series of coincidences that had kept us from going down athwart were only the steady guidance of a kindly fate. I went to sleep with a thankful mind. I slept soundly, having had no sleep for about sixty-three hours, and only about six hours during the previous eighty-seven. As deep as the sleep was, however, it was interrupted during the night, as I became aware of efforts being made to pry me off the cot, as it were, and I suddenly recognized that a huge insect was using its body for a wedge or crowbar. I recognized in the space a species of big spider that I had seen in the afternoon, something of a cross between a spider and a crab, with a round black body and a multitude of red legs. Naturally, I took measures to get rid of such a bedfellow, but I knew that the tribe was too hopelessly numerous for extermination. Old Morrow seems to be their breeding ground. I have not found them elsewhere, and I believe they are not poisonous. I was still asleep when the soldier came in to bring breakfast, coffee, and bread. I asked him if there was anything else. He answered, No, senor, in a half-injured tone of surprise, as if to say, What do you expect? Who ever heard of anybody having anything else? Early in the forenoon, Captain Bustamante came in. He said that he had taken out the flag of truce with information that we were well, and had brought back a box for me, and the men's bags, and twenty-five dollars in gold, all from the New York, with a memorandum from Flag Lieutenant Staunton, with whom he had communicated. He then said that there was a matter which he hoped I would pardon him for referring to. He trusted I would not consider him impertinent in asking about the torpedoes on the Merrimack to which I had referred while on the Reina Mercedes, since it was a question of humanity. He wished to know about them for the guidance of divers whose destruction could not affect the issue of war. I had decided that it would be best to give out no further information about the Merrimack in order to keep the Spaniards guessing, and to have them keep clear of the vessel and hesitate to take measures to blow her out of the channel. I therefore told the captain that it would distress me to think that harmless divers should suffer, and as a matter of humanity, I would tell him that there were torpedoes on the vessel. But as to their location or arrangement or any other features, he must excuse me from giving information. He was most courteous and apologized for having ventured the question, reiterating that he asked only for humanity's sake and because I had voluntarily made reference to the subject on the Mercedes. Referring to the matter of our having been put in the Moro by order of General Linares, he said he had seen the General, and during the conversation the General said he would not visit me, because he feared that if he came he should not be able to bring himself to do his official duty. I wondered what he meant by his official duty. I have never been able to clear this matter up with any satisfaction. Mr. Ramsden told me during his first visit, without any reference to the matter on my part, that the general had said the same thing to him. The general kept his word. Although he sent a courteous message of greeting by Mr. Ramsden at this visit, he never called, and only sent his chief of staff on the day before our exchange. 
I do not know whether he changed his interpretation of his official duty. End of Part 3, Section 2